Father, we thank you for this glorious day. And we pray that you will give us a continually deepening understanding of resurrection. We ask this through the resurrected Christ. Amen. I have a feeling that our perspective of the resurrection tends to be too small. You know, sometimes we, when we think about resurrection, we're thinking so much about about how Jesus is raised. Uh, we're thinking about how we how we can prove that Jesus is raised. And the thing that strikes me is when I read the scriptures, I really find very little in the scriptures about a, an attempt to prove the resurrection. What I find is, is a, a desire to talk about what the resurrection means. What, it, what it's leading us to, where it's going. And I have a feeling, both in my own struggle and perhaps in yours, that our perspective of where resurrection is going and what it means is too small. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to read this passage from Revelation this morning. Because what we find is that when we get to to, to Revelation and it's talking to us about, about what it's going to be like when the kingdom is ushered in in all of its fullness... That starts with resurrection. Richard Middleton says, Resurrection is the ultimate completion of all of God's purposes. Everything that we find that God has promised to us, everything that we, that we have in our minds about what those days will be and that day will be and that life will be, starts with the empty tomb. And so when we turn to the book of Revelation particularly, we find this amazing image about what that day will be. What it looks like when God answers our prayer that we prayed just a few moments ago. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because in a sense, the ultimate definition of eternity with Christ is that his kingdom has come and his will is done. Everything about that day is about the fulfillment, the coming to completion of all of God's plans and all that God has designed. And that's why when you look at the book of Revelation, you find that the trees there along the river of life are for the healing of the nations. They're about healing. They're about setting things right. They're about restoring what is broken and damaged and crushed. It's about hope in the midst of despair. And that picture in Revelation is this this growing image of God doing things to restore and to bring life out of everything that we think is, is completely dead. We find there no weeping or crying. We don't find shame there. We don't find guilt there. We find freedom in that place because the kingdom has come in all of its fullness and everything about that existence is the kingdom. We find relationships made right. One of my favorite passages in Revelation is in the seventh chapter. 
And uh, John says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. People of every tribe and nation and people group and language all there. And it's not that everyone has now instantly become the same. They still have their identity. He can identify them as being different. It's just that everyone is unified. There is complete and total reconciliation. All the things that divide us now, all the ways in which we say they're different than me, so I'm better than them. And we see those differences as, as things to, to worry about and, and to, as negative things in the kingdom. All of that becomes positive. You think about the world and the broken relationships in the world. Nation against nation. People group against people group. All of that is healed and restored through the resurrected Christ. And the relationships that you and I have, that we struggle with, where there's hurt and pain and and disagreement and difficulty, it will all be healed through the resurrected Christ. You know, I'm convinced that one of the reasons we struggle with that picture is because we've forgotten that that was God's intent from the very beginning. We sort of had this mindset that, well, that that day when we experienced the new heaven and the new earth, when we experienced that day, finally, we will get, God will get what he wants. Something he hasn't been able to, to experience before. But if we think that way, we're wrong. I'm convinced that you can't really understand the, the images in Revelation until you begin to understand the images in the first part of the book of Genesis. Andy Crouch says that Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 are missing chapters from the working Bibles of a lot of Christians. We don't really pay that much attention to them. But there's a part of me that feels like if we just had Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, we might have enough. Because both of them tell us this is God's intent. This is God's design. This is what the kingdom is to be. This is what God has always wanted it to be. John Walton writes about how the creation story, we get so wrapped up in in the how of creation that we miss the whole point of it. Which is that God is creating for function. God's purpose in creating is to create a world of shalom. A world that is in perfect balance in which everything works exactly as it's supposed to work. Relationships are exactly as they are to be. All of the the environment works exactly as it's supposed to be. All of the ways we relate to creation is exactly as it's supposed to be. That is the purpose of God's creation. That he creates a world in which his people and his creatures can experience that balance, that rightness. And that's why when you get to so many places in the creation story, what is it God says? He looked at it and said, this is good. Over and over it's repeated. And God saw that it was good. 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 And you get to the end, he says, and God saw it was very good. It's good. 
It's very, very good. That is God's intent for all of his creation. And even the one thing that Genesis says, that God says, is not good, which is surprising when you realize that in the midst of all this, it's good, it's good, it's good. God says there's one thing that's not good, is that a human being should not be alone. I find that fascinating because that seems to imply that, that human relationships are necessary for us to experience the fullness of what God created us to experience. That may be hard for us sometimes because often our human relationships are the thing that create the most conflict in us and pain in us and struggle with us. But that was not God's intent from the beginning. And so he says, it's not good for this human being to be alone. I'm going to create something, a helper for him. And the first thing he tries is animals. Right after this, he creates all the animals. And, and Adam has them parade in front of him, and he names all of them. And Adam is close to the animals. I heard a theologian recently say, maybe that's why pets are so important to us. From the very beginning, we have this connection with creation. And it makes sense that we would have a loving kind of relationship with animals. But they aren't enough either. So he creates another human being. And that human relationship is a gift of God. The problem is sin and evil enter the picture and it skews everything. It skews our relationships. It skews our vision of God and our understanding of God. It skews our vision of ourselves. And this world that was created to work right now doesn't work right. There is a movement among us, it's been through history, that the sense, it's really the beginning sin, is that I can experience the rightness of the world without God. Dennis Kinlaw said that the only thing worse, that God created the world for to be experienced with God, and the only thing worse than a world without God that works wrong is a world without God that works right. Because that would be a lie. But we try. We keep trying. One of the cues of that is how insurance companies talk about things that happen that we describe as acts of God. Acts of God, they are not blessing and loving things and kind things. What are the acts of God? Tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, all of these things that we call, these are acts of God. Really? Because the implication of that is everything would be perfect if God didn't keep intervening into the stuff. You know, we would plant and everything would grow perfectly. We would make plans and it would all turn out exactly as it's supposed to. And then God has to intervene with some kind of natural disaster and messes it all up. We know that's backwards. Because the reality is, it's the evil one who's doing all the destructive stuff. If it weren't for God intervening in ways that we don't even realize, we would not have things the way we do. And all of this is God's plan. All of this is God's design for us from the very beginning. And, rest, and uh, resurrection is leading us to that once again. But there's something in us that feels like we're, we're getting to something. Resurrection is leading us to something that... that Maybe God didn't do quite right in the beginning. I was reading an article the other day about 
um, about uh, transhumanism and and uh, cyborgs and you know artificial intelligence and all these things. And it was referencing the 1970s television show, The Six Million Dollar Man. How many of you remember that show? Okay, a number of you. And if you don't, we, you can others. If you don't know, ask somebody who's over 50, and they'll they'll tell you about it. Maybe over 60. But, um, you know, it was a show, this guy named Steve Austin, who was in a plane crash. And uh, he was a military pilot. He had a plane crash. And they saved his life, but only by implanting all kinds of bionic stuff into him. And so he was called a $6 million man. When I read that article, it made me think back to grade school. Now, you know, you look at me now and you think, man, he is so cool. He's got it all together. <laughs> okay, that's a little bit too much laughing. I'm just telling you, right? That's, just, that's way too much. You know, he's the kind of guy we all want to emulate and we want to be like him and we act like him. You know, I know that's how you think now, but I wasn't always like that. <laughs> I wasn't always like this. And, and sixth grade was one of those cases. I'll give you an example. This friend of mine and I had this contest. We got into Roman numerals. Who could write Roman numerals the highest? That was how we spent our free time. <laughs> yeah. I have notebooks and notebooks of Roman numerals up to the millions. I hope my mother saved those. I don't know if she did or not. You know, this is, this is how cool I was, you know. So you take what you want with that. What made me think of that was that this friend of mine who did this Roman numeral thing, numeral thing with me was named Steve Austin. He was the least like the guy on the television show you could ever imagine. So we called him the Sixth Cent Man. <laughs> it probably marred him for life now that I think about it. I'm so sorry about that. But, you know, we have this mindset in that television show. They say we can build him better. We can we can we can do better than this human body. We can make him awesome. And the whole point of it was, if we didn't have the limitations of being human, if we could just get outside of being human, then we'd really be something. And that idea creeps into our mindset. If I could just be better than human then we could be, I could really be something. But the reality is, God created us as human beings. And he said, this is very good. That's what we're supposed to be. And the resurrection is not a, a sense of taking us outside of humanity and sort of make us superhuman. It's saying we now exp- can experience the fullness of being human. Just as God intended us to be. And that's why our vision of eternal life, our vision of the new heaven and new earth that resurrection is leading us to is so important. Because if we think it is sort of this ethereal thing where we're going to have wings and harps and floating around in some kind of existence, then human bodies are sort of worthless. But if our mindset is the biblical mindset that says we are going to inhabit this new heaven and new earth in resurrected bodies, probably something that looks like Jesus' resurrected body. And we're going, to be, we're going to be fully human in that moment, redeemed, restored in that moment, in ourselves, in our relationships, in our understanding of others and creation and God. Then what we have now is a gift of God. And the great thing about resurrection is that we don't have to wait until the kingdom comes in all of its fullness to experience it. We can begin to experience it now. Right now. We can begin to be people of the resurrection now. 
And to know hope when we are overwhelmed with despair. And life when it feels like death is crushing us. That's the life that Jesus rose from the grave to give to us and to all people. If we'll receive it. The awesome thing about being resurrection people is that we begin to understand then that God gives us the privilege of being his agents of resurrection in this world. We get to be agents of resurrection. We get to be light and hope to people living in darkness and despair. I always find it interesting that that in all the resurrection stories, they're witnesses. And they're not spirit witnesses. There's some angels there. But the primary witnesses are human beings. It's women and some of the disciples. And as the book of Acts goes along, more and more, story after story after story, is bearing witness to the resurrected Christ. And that's how God always intended it to be. In Genesis, God says, I'm creating these people in my image. These people are to be my image bearers. That's what people of the resurrection are. It's not just about us. It's about our influence. It's our witness. It's our lives lived out in this world among people who don't know the power of the resurrection. Who don't realize that they're missing out on the joy of Christ and the life of Christ. And it doesn't mean that our lives now suddenly become perfect. It's just that we have Christ living in us that gives us strength and resources and hope in the midst of a life that is far from perfect. And that's our hope in the resurrected Christ. And it says a lot about how we go about doing that. A few weeks ago, I was preaching from the Mark's gospel, the story of Jesus in the synagogue and Uh, A demon-possessed man stands up and begins shouting at Jesus, and Jesus rebukes him. And the demon, the man says to Jesus, the demon says, are you going to destroy us? I didn't really talk that much about that, but afterwards, someone came to me and said they had an insight in that moment. When they heard that scripture read, they said that maybe, maybe that's what so many people in the world are thinking that Christians' intent is. That, That the intent is that our goal is to destroy them. To conquer them, to crush them. When in reality, our goal is to love them. Our goal is to bring them to the resurrected Christ so that they can experience the power of his grace in their lives as we have. And you wonder, why do so many of the people in the world have such antagonistic feelings about the gospel, about God, about Jesus, about the church? That's on us and our witness. Somehow in the mix, we have lost the witness of the resurrection. We have lost this this image bearing of hope and life that is the kingdom. We've lost that image in Revelation 21 and 22 of healing and reconciliation and grace and hope. That same message that God intended and created from the very beginning. And we've missed it. And maybe it's because we aren't really engaged with the resurrected Christ. 
But that's what he calls us to. He calls us to be people who are so engaged with him that everything of our lives is about him. Matthew Bates has written a fascinating book. And I've mentioned it before, but it's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And the premise of his book is simply this. What does it mean to be a Christian? In essence, if you boil it down, it means pledging allegiance to Jesus. It is pledging our lives in allegiance to Jesus. That every part of our lives, every moment of our lives, every thought, every attitude, every relationship, everything about us is pledging allegiance to Jesus. In the same way someone might pledge allegiance to their country, giving themselves to that. But in an even even deeper way, we pledge allegiance to Jesus. That's the kingdom. Someone asked me a week or two ago, do you think it's possible for us to sin in heaven? And of course, you know, the response is, well, of course not, no. And then I began thinking about that a little bit, and I'm kind of at the point of, well, maybe it is. Because the alternative to that would be, I'd really like to sin, but I can't. I really wish I could be self-centered, but I can't because I'm in heaven. I don't think that's the kingdom. The kingdom is, why would I want to do anything else but follow Jesus? Why would I want my life to be anything but about the resurrected Christ? I want everything about my existence to be the resurrected Christ. And that is, in essence, what the eternal kingdom is about. It's about our, everyone in that kingdom is there because they want what the kingdom is. And people who are not there, people who who choose to not be a part of the kingdom are not a part of the kingdom because, as Lewis says, heaven doesn't offer anything that they want. And that bears on us now. What do we want? Do we want the resurrected Christ to be the essence of our existence? Do we want his life to to be absorbed, to absorb our life. That our attitudes are his and our perspectives are his and our desires are his and our loves are his and all of our existence is his. And yes, we will all, we're all on a journey and we, we all have ups and downs on that journey. But what's the passion of our hearts? Deep down inside, what do we desire? Is it the hope and the life and the joy of the resurrected Christ, pledging allegiance to him. One of my favorite verses of, of Revelation 22 is verse 17 that says, The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. That's the invitation of the resurrected Christ. And that's the invitation to you and me. And wherever we are on our journey, still trying to figure it out, along the journey, a little ways or a long ways, we never outlive the passion 
for the resurrected Christ. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Think about the resurrected Christ. Think about all that he desires for us. And may the passion for Christ be ours. Father, we thank you for the promise of resurrection. We thank you for what the resurrection means for us and your whole world. Father, increase our passion for the resurrected Jesus. Keep working in us. Keep transforming us, restoring us. And we ask this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.